I'm going to tell you a quick anecdote, quick story, and I'm going to pray again because uh, I feel like I need to pray again, um, and then we'll get started. It's been a challenging week, uh, lots of stuff going on, and <laughs> some of you know this, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you know this, I had a little bit of a freak out today, and just a couple things weren't going right, and uh, my flesh uh, decided to freak out, and so I was really stressed out, and as I uh, drove home from, I was at Starbucks uh, finishing up this, and as I drove home, um, I just started praying, and I started, I caught myself, like I didn't realize it was happening, but I caught myself singing, and what I was singing was, you alone can rescue, and I didn't know they were going to play it tonight. Um, so consider this one of those uh, one of those behold moments I like so much. That's uh, a reminder that God alone rescues. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray so I can stop crying a little bit, and then we'll get started. I just God's good, guys. I cannot tell you enough how kind our God is. Let's pray, Father. Oh, you are so good. Thank you for this service. Thank you for this privilege. And thank you for your word in which we get to know you, in which you reveal yourself to us. And I pray, Father, that as we open up your word tonight and we look at the life of your servant Moses, that you will speak loud and clear, that I will disappear and you will make your voice heard and your gospel will grip the heart of every single person here. We bless your name. Your name. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Okay. How y'all doing? Y'all good? Yeah? Okay. All right, well, we're continuing the series, Jesus is Better, in which we look at figures in the Old Testament who um, point toward the work of Jesus Christ, because we affirm that the whole Bible is about Jesus, Old Testament and New Testament. The whole thing is about Jesus Christ. And so, in this series, we have uh, looked at a couple different ways that Jesus has been pointed to by the Old Testament, one of which is analogous service, where a figure in the Old Testament does something that Jesus does better or more completely. We've talked about Adam and Abel, and we've talked about Noah and and Boaz and Isaac. Last week, we talked about Joseph, who was betrayed and abandoned so that we don't have to, or how Joseph was betrayed and abandoned, how Jesus is the better Joseph because he was betrayed and abandoned so that we didn't have to be. And instead of using his great power to, to, to wreak vengeance upon those who betrayed him, he instead reconciled us to himself. And so this week, we are going to look at another figure, just a few pages over from the end of Joseph's life. Joseph um, if you've read the book of Genesis, Joseph dies at the end of Genesis. And in the beginning of the book of Exodus, we have the next 
part of the story of the people of God. And so if you want to turn to the book of Exodus real quick, uh, Exodus chapter 1, um, we're going to look at the story of Moses. And through the story of Moses, we are going to learn that Jesus is the true and better Moses. Now there are three landmark events in Moses' life that I want to look at tonight in this uh, discussion of how his life points to Jesus and what Jesus would accomplish. So in order to understand those events, we need a little background on Moses. So if you want, turn to uh, Exodus chapter uh, 1. I'm just going to kind of, you know, you can like follow along, I guess. I'm just going to kind of overview the first part of Moses' life. Basically what happened was that when Joseph and his brothers and their father Israel settled in Egypt during the famine, you remember that? We talked about that last week. They stayed there, and they grew, and they multiplied, and they became uh, numerous. And the Pharaoh died, Exodus 1 says, the Pharaoh that knew Joseph, and another Pharaoh raised up who didn't know Joseph, didn't know the people of, of God, or didn't have any affection toward them. So at some point over the course of about 400 years, the Pharaoh of Egypt realized that these Hebrew people were becoming too numerous, and they were actually a threat to his power base. I don't want these people to rise up and overthrow me. So he decided to enslave the people of Israel, the descendants of Israel, who grew from a a group of about 70 up to, by some estimates, almost 2 million people in Egypt. So he enslaved them. In fact, he went went so far as to command that any uh, um, Hebrew uh, midwife, you know, who helps with uh, childbirth, if a male baby was delivered, the midwife was to kill the baby um, because he didn't want any Hebrew men to, to grow up and possibly join foreign armies against Egypt. What we see in the in first chapter of Exodus is a story of, of two Hebrew midwives who were faithful to the command of God to protect the people of Israel and, and disobeyed Pharaoh in order to save those uh, descendants of Israel, of God's people. Um, one of the babies that was saved, one of the babies that should have been killed and wasn't, was Moses. And Moses' family, his, his uh, father and his mother and his siblings, hid him for as long as they could, but there came to a point where you can't hide a baby anymore. So they built a basket that floated like a boat, and they put him in the river, and they floated him down to where the daughter of the Pharaoh was bathing. Daughter of the Pharaoh opened up the basket, saw the baby, had compassion on him, and took him to her home and raised him as her son. So Moses, the Hebrew baby who shouldn't have lived, was raised in the house of his enemy and grew to manhood. There was a problem, though. See, Pharaoh still hated the Hebrews, and he still persecuted the Hebrews. And so there came a point where Moses, uh, uh, walking along the path, came upon a, an Egyptian slave master who was beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And Moses fought him, defended his countrymen, and killed him, killed the Egyptian, and hit the body. And then later found out that his crime had been discovered. And so he fled to Midian, another country, where he ended up getting married and, and working for his father-in-law as a shepherd for 40 years. So while he was uh, a shepherd on a hillside, 
God intervened because God had his eye on Moses. And at the right time, God called him. This is what we see in Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. And he calls him to an incredible task. Moses was to go back to the land he was raised. And he was to rescue his people from their bondage. So that's what he does. And if you've uh, been, in, been in and around church uh, for any length of time, you've probably heard this story. Because Moses goes back. God gives him miraculous signs and wonders to perform to prove that he comes from God. And uh, he goes to the court of the Pharaoh. He and his brother, uh, Aaron, go to the court of the Pharaoh. And Moses says, famously, anyone? Let my people go. God commands that you let my people go. Pharaoh says, which God? Because, you know, the Egyptians had a bunch. Moses says, the God who is I am that I am commands you to let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. So Moses, by the power of God, calls down ten plagues on Egypt. And these plagues are important for two reasons. One, they only affected the Egyptians. They didn't affect the people of God. The people of God were spared. Secondly, these plagues attacked at the gods of the Egyptians, showing that Yahweh was more powerful than the sun god and the river god and the god over the beasts of the earth and the, and the pests that crawl along the earth. God is more pow- or the god of the Israelites is more powerful than the gods who control the elements. The god of the Israelites is more powerful than Pharaoh himself, and we see that in the tenth plague, the most harrowing and gruesome of the plagues in which the firstborn of every house of Egypt was killed by the angel of death. But the people of God were spared, all who did a very specific task. They took a lamb without spot or blemish and killed it. And they took its blood and they smeared it on the doorpost. And any house that had the blood of the lamb covering it the angel of death would pass over and go on. And so the people of Israel were spared the terror of the death angel because of the blood of the lamb that had been sacrificed. This last plague finally uh, broke the Pharaoh's stubbornness. He said, fine, go. Take your God, take your stuff, take our stuff too, just get out. So Israel plundered Egypt as they left. They took their gold and their, 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 their precious uh, 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 articles and, sto- and stones, and they left. And they headed towards uh, their promised land, the land of Canaan, the land of their forefathers. But something happened. You see, Pharaoh had a change of heart again. Even after his son dies, Pharaoh has a change of heart. And we see this in Exodus 14. So if you want to turn there, uh, we'll start reading there. Starting in verse 5. It says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we've done that we have let Israel go from serving us? 
So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all, over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea at Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon, which is specifically where God told Moses to stop. He said, Put up, set up camp facing the sea right there. So Pharaoh, coming to his senses after being so distraught over the great death that Egypt has suffered, is furious. He says, what are we doing? We can't let them go. They're our slave labor force. Our entire economy depends on them. Let's go get them. And so he takes his entire army, and he goes after them. And it says he overtakes them. They, they figure, oh, they're at the sea. We've got them trapped. So look what happens next. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, uh, excuse me, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Which is actually not true. They didn't actually say that. But in a moment of panic, they suddenly thought, well, the, the old days were better. Why, why didn't we, why did we change? Why did we want to leave? Aren't we like that? When we feel like we're cornered, we say, oh man, I, I shouldn't have obeyed God. I should have just done my own thing. See, nothing good comes from, from listening to God. Nothing good comes from this. Sometimes when we're in a tough spot, I think we're tempted to revert to those old ways of thinking. See, these people are used to being slaves. I thought, ah, oh, well, it's safer being a slave than being slaughtered out here in the wild. But look what Moses says. Verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you, will, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Moses says, stand still and watch what God does. Verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Something interesting here is that God hears the complaints of the people. And he says to Moses, why do you cry to me? See, God treated Moses as if he were the representative of these people. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night 
without one coming near the other all night. So the presence of God is demonstrated by the cloud that had gone before them, moves behind them, and protects them from the Egyptians. Twenty-one. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall uh, to them on their right hand and on their left. The, I, I don't know if you've heard, but I've heard scientists, eggheads, smart people, try to explain away the, uh, the miracles of the Old Testament. I've heard some people say, oh, well, you know, the Red Sea, that was actually the Reed Sea, which was much shallower, and they found a sandbar that they were able to walk. So it's like they crossed the sea, but they didn't really cross the sea. I, I would, I would uh, suggest that the writer of Exodus, who most believe is Moses, would argue, because he says there was a wall of water on either side of them, and they walked along on, on dry ground. He doesn't give room for, you know, explaining it away. This was a miracle that God was doing, that God used Moses as his mediator, and when Moses stretched out his hand, God acted. Verse uh, 23, the Egyptians pursued and went on in after them in the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in, a, in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. And threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Some translations say that the wheels of the chariots were actually falling off. Okay, they got into the middle of the, of the dry ground, in the middle of the Red Sea, and all of their chariots started falling apart. And they couldn't ride, they, couldn't, they were thrown in confusion, they couldn't move in an organized manner. They were in a bad situation. And they recognized too late that the Lord fought for Israel. All right, let's finish the story. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Uh, of all the hosts of, of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall uh, to them on their right and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. And they also believed in the Lord and in his servant. Moses. Imagine that. You're panicked because your old masters are, are coming after you with a vengeance. And the man of God stands and raises his hands and the sea parts. Walls of water on either side and dry ground in the middle. Now, it's, it's funny um, Let's move on. Um, get to that in a second. God used Moses to rescue the people of Israel from bondage and brought them out of certain death into life and victory over their enemies. 
the deliverance of Israel began with the Passover, in which they were spared by, spared by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. But when their old masters tried to enslave them again, they panicked. I, I was listening to a, a much better sermon on this by Tim Keller, um, who, he, he brought up this point, which I thought was, was uh, great to think about. Imagine you're an Israelite, and the sea has parted, and there are walls on either side. What are, you, what are you thinking? How do you feel? He says, I would imagine some of the Israelites were very excited, very full of faith. They're like, yeah, walking in the middle of the Red Sea. Take that, Egypt. You can't catch us because our God is awesome. And imagine some people were walking in the middle of the Red Sea going, I'm going to die. Uh, this, uh, how long is this going to hold out? But Keller said, God saved all of them. The big faith, the small faith. He rescued all of them from their enemies. Not because of the power of their faith, but because of the greatness of his power and his promise to them. That's a big idea, guys. Sometimes as we face the trials we face, our faith is small. But we got to remember that our God is big. And our God is strong. Our God is good. So they rescue, were rescued out of the Red Sea. The next big moment in the service of Moses for Israel was Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, you may remember, God gave his law through Moses to the people. Something interesting to, to, to recognize is that they weren't given the law until after they were rescued. They did nothing to earn the rescue. They did no righteous works to deserve the rescue. God chose to rescue them first and then said, because of what I've done for you, here is how you serve me. Here is how you love me. In Exodus 19, God tells Moses, okay, you're at, you're at Mount Sinai. Tell the people to consecrate themselves, to purify themselves, and I'm going to speak. So in Exodus 20, you have God speaking. And um, I'll go and read the first part of Exodus 20. We'll get to the, the next slide has some later verses, but I want to just give you the sense of this. And God spoke all these words. So God on the mountain, this is the, the thundering and lightning and, and, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound like a trumpet blast on the top of the mountain, the presence of God and all of his majesty, and the people quaked in fear as they saw it. And out of that cloud, out of that noise, came a voice. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or in, that is in the earth beneath, that is in the water under the sea. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Are you recognizing this? Are you recognizing the list? This is what we call the Ten Commandments. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is, your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not cover, covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now look what happens next. And when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and, trembled and they stood afar off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The people knew they needed a mediator. They needed Moses to be a go-between between them and God, because God, in his holiness and his magnificence, was too, too terrifying for a sinful people. They needed a mediator. Um, I found this quote this week from uh, Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to read it to you. One might possibly stand with unblanched cheek in the presence of divine power, but when the Lord reveals his holiness, a man might far sooner gaze into the sun than look into the face of God. Even his love is as the fire of a furnace to our unloveliness. At the sight of our God, we say with Job, I have heard thee by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye, mine eye sees thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. The nearness of God to sinful man is a killing thing. And those who have known it will confess that it is so. God in his holiness, in his magnificence, is a great and terrible thing. And on our own, we cannot bear it. We cannot. They need a mediator, just like we need a mediator. God calls Moses up into the cloud atop the mountain, and the people at the foot of the mountain quickly fall into sin. Um, in Exodus uh, 24, God reaffirms his covenant with Israel, with the elders, and then later calls Moses up, says, okay, you and me, we're going to talk. And Moses goes up on the mountain, God gives him the law. But when Moses, come, Moses uh, is up there, God says, you better go back down, because the people have turned against me. And this is what we see, unfortunately, in Exodus 32 through 34, that... The people, seeing Moses gone for so long up into the cloud, are like, well, he's dead. Um, what are we going to do now? And Aaron, the high priest, he's, you know, he's in charge. Aaron, what do we do? Uh, bring all your gold to me. Bring all your, uh, you know, all your, all your treasure. And he forms a golden calf for them to worship. The people of Israel, who just not too long ago, had been rescued from the hand of the Egyptians by God. Make an idol and say, this is our God. 
You rescued us at the Red Sea. And they danced around it, and they, they sung. As Moses is going down the mountain, Joshua says, it sounds like there's a war going on. He's like, no, it's singing. Moses gets down to the bottom, and he sees what's going on, and his, his righteous indignation burns and boils over, and he takes the tablets that God had written the law on, and he smashes them in anger. Moses had an anger problem. The more you read the Old Testament, Moses got angry a lot. And this time, it's justified. He's brought you through so much. How can you worship anyone or anything else? You fools. But as, as angry as Moses is, God is furious. So God says, you know what? These people, these stiff-necked and stubborn people, they've turned against me time and again. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kill them all, and I'm going to start with you, Moses. I'm going to make you into a great nation. That way, because Moses is a descendant of Abraham, so the covenant with Abraham still continues through Moses. So God can do this and not go against his word. But Moses is God. If you do this, which you have every right to, the other nations will see this, and they won't understand. They will say that you couldn't save your own people. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people of Israel and begs forgiveness for their folly. Um, one example is in Exodus 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up these peop- this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. I'll stop right there. What happens is that Moses sets up what he calls the tent of meeting outside the camp. Moses goes and meets with God. God descends uh, in the form of a cloud to the tent. God always appears to Moses in a cloud because if you see God face to face, you'll die because of his perfection, his holiness. is too much for us. So God, in his mercy, basically appears in a cloud to talk to Moses. So Moses goes out time and again to the tent of meeting to talk with God, to plead with God. And in verse uh, uh, 11 of chapter 33, I believe, it says that God talked to Moses like a man talks with his friend. That's how close they were, which I think is just an incredible thing to think about. The God of the universe talked to Moses like he was his friend. So, Exodus 33, uh, 12 through 17, we'll start again. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he, God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. See, at one point God said, you know what, I'm just going to send an angel ahead of them to kill all their enemies, but I'm not going to go with them. And Moses said, if you don't go with us, we're sunk. We will not survive without you. We'll continue on. Verse 15 of Exodus uh, 33. And he said to him, Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If you don't go with us, I don't want to go. I want to stay right here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, 
for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Uh, look now at Exodus 34.10. And he said, behold, this is God, saying, behold, I will make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you shall see among whom you, uh, whom you are, shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. See, God reaffirms his covenant with the people of Israel, the stubborn, stupid people of Israel, because of the faithfulness of their mediator, Moses. He says, because you have, I found favor in you, or I, you have found favor in my eyes, I will do what you ask. So Moses continues to lead the people, um, not always successfully, not always well. So the third landmark, we talked about the Exodus, the Passover and Red Sea experience. We talked about Mount Sinai. The third landmark in Moses' life that I want to touch on is the end, the end of the journey. God took the people up to the land of Canaan, and they sent spies in. And when the spies came back and said, these people are too big, they're too strong. We can't beat them. And only two of the 12 spies, Joseph and Caleb, said, no, we can take them. God is with us. The people rebelled against Moses. They said, no, we can't go in. You're leading us into our death. God was not pleased in their lack of faith. So he said, fine. Moses, turn right. I'm going to let you guys wander for another 40 years. And everyone who is an adult in this generation will perish. And I'll take their children in. So for 40 years, the people of Israel, because of their lack of faith in in the God who led them out of Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness. God protected them. He provided for them. He did more for them than they ever deserved. And that generation died and another took its place. And only three people, only a few people, survived. Moses, Joseph, uh, Caleb. Or not Joseph. uh, Joshua and Caleb. Um... And again, they approached Canaan, but there's a problem. See, Moses is not allowed to go in. Because there was a point where the people needed water, and so God said to Moses, take your staff, go over to that rock, strike the rock, and it'll produce water. Moses did, Moses did and it produced water. Later on, another situation where they needed water, God said to Moses, go speak to the rock, and it will produce water. Moses, in his anger, again, went up to the, to the people and said, is this what you want, you rebellious people? You want water? Fine, I'll give you water. And so he hits the rock twice with his staff. Furious. And water was produced. But God's like, look, you didn't listen to me. I gave you a clear, clear command, but you were more concerned about making a scene. I'm paraphrase, but that's essentially what's, what's happening. Because he was. He was more concerned about, you know, I've had enough with you people. I'm so sick of leading you people. So God said, because you have not treated my commands as holy, I'm not going to let you or your brother go in. So Aaron dies before they get there. Moses, now, now 120 years old, leads them to the edge of the territory. They're about to go into the promised land. And God says, okay, you're done. Moses teaches this new generation of Israelites who never saw the exodus out of Egypt, who never saw the Red Sea part. 
he recounts for them the history of their people. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, which I'd really encourage you to read. If you're looking for something new to, to read for your quiet time, I know you don't think Deuteronomy, first thing, but I would encourage you to do this for this reason. Essentially, this is Moses' second telling of the law. He repeats the law for the people. He tells them the history of their people, and he warns them. If you do what God has commanded you to do, you will have success, you will thrive, you will have a great life. If you disobey, if you rebel, you'll suffer. He warns them. And from some of the stuff that uh, is recorded in, in Deuteronomy 33, he doesn't have high hopes that they'll listen, but he does it anyway. So finally, Moses goes, out, goes up to the top of Mount Nebo, and there he looks upon the land of Canaan. But that's as close as he ever gets. And his successor, Joshua, is the one who leads the people into their promise, leads them into their land of inheritance. Now, let me read this next part. This is cool. I just think this is really neat. This is the coda. This is the end of Deuteronomy 34. This is the cap on the life of Moses in the Bible. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. And the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all uh, the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his servants and all of his land, for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel." Now, that's, a, that's an epitaph right there. I mean, that's, would you like your life to be summed up like that? No one was like this person. He, all the mighty deeds he, deeds he did in the name of the Lord for the sake of his people. Scripture records Moses' life, even his faults. We talked about his anger, but still presents him as a great prophet. But what's cool about this is that as Moses was looking out towards the land of Canaan, he, just, he wasn't just looking at the land of promise that the people were about to enter into. In a sense, Moses was looking forward to the next Moses who would come. Another Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, who would lead his people into their land of promise. See, Jesus is the true and better Moses because he delivers his people from bondage, stands as mediator between us and God, and leads us into the glorious land of our inheritance. So I want to give you four quick ways. I, I don't know when we started, so I don't know how long I've been, so I, just hang with me. Four quick ways, four instances where Jesus supersedes what Moses did. First, Jesus frees us from bondage to sin and death and leads us out of death into life. See, Jesus was our Passover lamb. That's why in the book of John chapter 1, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's Jesus who in his death became the sacrifice. And because of his shed blood for our sake, death can pass over us. Jesus sets us free from slavery to sin. And when sin, like an angry old pharaoh, tries to get us to come back and be slaves again. Jesus leads us through death into life. Jesus leads us through a Red Sea of sorts to free us from our captors. 
as we are born again, as we are made new in Christ. That's what Titus, uh, what Paul writes about when he writes to Titus. Um, we're going through the book of Titus in our Sunday school class, and I'm really digging it. And I love this passage, so I, I was excited to share it with you. Titus 3, 3-7 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's kind of a fair assessment of the world, I think. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, or of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, or made righteous by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I like that. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. It's like the people of Israel. God didn't save them because he, they followed his law. They didn't even have his law. They were just enslaved. And they looked to him for salvation. And he rescued them. He rescued them from that which kept them captive. Because he is kind. So Jesus, our great Moses, frees us from bondage and slavery. And takes us into uh, a new life of freedom. Secondly, Jesus is the mediator between us and God. We need a mediator, just like Israel did, because we are sinful, we are broken, we are corrupt, and we cannot approach a perfect and holy God without a go between. Look what Isaiah said in his uh, messianic prophecy. In Isaiah 53, 750 years before Jesus was even born, he wrote this. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He's a mediator goes before God on our behalf by his, by his sacrifice, by his blood. 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, became our go-between, became our mediator because we could not reach God, we could not touch God So many religions of the world try to work their way up to God. But the truth is we can't approach him because we're corrupt. And when we see him on his throne in his glory, we say like Isaiah, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. We can't can't approach him. We We can't approach him to find mercy. But Jesus was our mediator who represents us to God in his death and represents God to us in his life and in his mercy. Another quote from Spurgeon, because it was a really good sermon that he preached on this. This is what it says. Oh, beloved, consider Jesus Christ our mediator. 
where, where is the like of him? He is man like ourselves, in all respects a sufferer, poor, needy, not uh, knowing even the pangs of death. And therefore he can lay his hand upon us with a warm brotherly love. But then he is God over all, blessed evermore, equal with the Most High, the well-beloved of the Father. And thus he can give his hand to the eternal God and so link our humanity with God. I feel most safe trusting all my concerns to that dear advocate, that interpreter, one of a thousand. Oh, Jesus, who can rival thee? Guys, we have no hope but our mediator who is unmatched in all of history. Jesus the Christ, man and God together. Thirdly, Jesus fulfills the law, of Moses, law, the law that Moses delivered to the people. Moses delivered a law to the people to show them how to approach God, how to interact with God, how to be righteous. But Paul tells us in Romans that that law, all it did was, all it did was show us how corrupt we are. All it did was show us how sinful we are and how far uh, short we fall of God's standard. But Jesus, he fulfilled it perfectly, earning a righteousness before God that is unstained. And then something amazing happened. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, or under the condemnation of the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. At the right time, Jesus came to completely fulfill the law that we couldn't, and then did something incredible. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he made him, Jesus, who, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ died in our place to pay for our sins. All of our guilt was heaped upon him. And for those who put their faith in him as, as the sacrifice, as the Passover lamb, his righteousness is credited to us. It's the great exchange. Double imputation. Imputation means to credit or to, to, um, to hand over, I guess. So our guilt was placed on him so that his righteousness could be placed on us so that we could stand before God in his holiness, clean and forgiven, not because of our works, not because of what we've done, but because of Jesus only. Finally, Jesus not only leads us into our promised inheritance with God, but he goes ahead of us to prepare the way for us. You see, Moses, he led them up to the promised land, but because of his sinfulness, he couldn't go in. But Jesus, our perfect mediator, our perfect deliverer, not only leads us to the promised inheritance of life with God forever, but he goes ahead of us to make it ready so that he can come back for us. Look at John 14, 1 through 7. Jesus speaking with his disciples, or actually just one through three, sorry. Jesus speaking with his disciples says this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We have... Okay, 
Oh, there we go. Hey. We have a promise of life forever with God because we have a mediator who went before us and because he has made the way for us. So some final thoughts. Like I said before, um, these may apply to you. These may all apply to you. Some may apply to you. But I just ask you to think about this. If you are in Christ, you have been set free from bondage. Right? The law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8.2. So, stop acting like a slave. See, the people of Israel, they were backed up against the Red Sea. And they had been set free where they saw their oppressor chasing after them, and they panicked. Because they thought they still had something, they had to, you know, they, they still thought they still owed something to them. But see, God had delivered them. Once God delivers us, our old master doesn't own us anymore. That's what Paul says in Romans. I don't have it on a slide, so if you have your Bible, turn there. Romans 6. I know it drives them nuts when I do this, but just, you know. Um, Romans 6. Yeah, I'll start on verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? He's building arguments. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's talking about the new life that the Christian has. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free of sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your moral body to make you obey his passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will not have no dominion over you, since you're not under the law, but under grace. That's huge. That is a huge statement. Because we have been made alive in Christ, sin no longer owns us. So stop acting like a slave. This is something that's been said on this stage hundreds of times, but it's still true and we still need to hear it. Stop acting like a slave. If you're in Christ, you have a great high priest who is your mediator before God. This gives you access to the throne of grace. Um, I'm reading a book, again, by Spurgeon. Sorry, it's kind of, he's weird. I've been trying to track with him for the last week because he's really, really smart. Um, and it's just a great man of God. But he wrote, wrote this book about prayer. And he talks about the throne of grace, which is mentioned in the book of Hebrews. And he says the throne of grace, if it weren't for Christ, would be a throne of judgment. That God on his throne would judge us guilty and condemn us. But because of Jesus, we can approach that throne of grace and find mercy and find deliverance. Uh, the actual text for that is in the book of Hebrews. Again, not on a slide. So do you have your Bibles? 
you can use your Bibles. It's okay. Um, just saying. All right. I can't find it. Has anybody found can, can anybody find it? Don't talk, just look. What is it? Thank you. Hebrews 4, 16. I want you to be awake. That's, that's why I do this. Start in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Amen. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may, have, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can boldly approach God because of our mediator who is our great high priest, because he has shed his blood like the great Passover lamb once for all so that our sin is atoned for and we are made clean in him. Because of that, we can approach the throne of God. If you are in Christ, you have the promise of a glorious inheritance with God. This should make the world's treasures seem small and tarnished. Sometimes it's easy to overvalue the things of this world because it's all everybody talks about, right? It's all of our friends, all of our coworkers, they all focus on the things of this world. They chase after them. But we who are in Christ have a glorious inheritance of life forever with God. That is everything. This stuff, this all fades. How's the hymn go? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world shall grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We have an inheritance, people of God. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, for he is the key to our future hope. All these things are available to you if you are in Christ, but if you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ, then you're still in bondage. You are still in bondage to sin because you are a sinner by your nature and by your deeds. You've broken God's law. You have refused to worship him as God and have sought to be in control of your own life. You are guilty, my friend. You are guilty before God and you are deserving of his judgment, of his wrath. If you are not in Christ, you don't have a mediator. And so you stand before a holy God with no one to protect you. And you have no, no hope. If you are not in Christ, you have no inheritance with God. You have no future hope. The only future you have is one of judgment. Because you have sinned. And you deserve his wrath. So to you, if you are not in Christ, I say, my dear friends, I say, repent. Repent. Turn from your sins and believe in the lamb who was slain for your sins. Believe in the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who, though perfect and sinless, gave himself up as a sacrifice for many. And in him you have hope because death will pass over you if you trust in him, the God who died and was raised again. Because he didn't just die, guys. He was resurrected 
and in him is life. So if you are not in Christ, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't repented of your sins and put your faith in him, I beg you to do that because you have no hope otherwise. So as the band comes back up, um, I want you to think about this. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, think about what you have in Jesus, the true and better Moses, a deliverer and a mediator and a promised inheritance that he is preparing for you and praise him for that. Sing your guts out for that. But if you are not in Christ and you are separated from God because of your sin, I want you to come see me. I'm gonna be right there. We're gonna talk about it. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and thank you for Jesus who is our our redeemer, our deliverer, our mediator, and our hope. Thank you that because he was our Passover lamb, we passed from death to life. And because he fulfilled the law of Moses that we could never fulfill, he gives us his righteousness and takes on our guilt so that for those of us who put our faith in him, we can stand before you and call you not just God, but Father, because we have been adopted into your family. Father, I pray for anyone here who has yet to believe that truth, who has resisted, who has wanted to be their own God, or wanted to at least not have to answer to anybody but themselves. Father, I pray that you would break them, that you would break their hearts, that you would show them that they are guilty before you, that they have sinned, they have broken your law, and they have no hope but Jesus. And Father, if there are any here who feel that is true, who know that is true, who confess with their mouths that they are sinners, Father, let them not let them not wait another second. Let them call on Jesus to be their Savior and their Lord. Give themselves to Him only, to Him fully. Worship Him as God and Lord. And find new life, a new family.